Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Ewing's Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Ewing's Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than a third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Ewing's Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkewingsfund.org impact. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash impact. Our guest today is Betsy Ehrenberg. Now, Betsy is the founder of Glass Alliance New Mexico and Glass Alliance of Northern California, organizations that further the development and appreciation of glass art. She is also a business strategy coach and president of Bridges to Santa Fe, a company that helps businesses achieve their goals through marketing and product design consulting. Also, Betsy's company is co-sponsoring an upcoming event called the Santa Fe Art Business Summit in collaboration with the Clark Ewing's Fund and the Art Business Institute. Now, Betsy, welcome to our show. I want to start off with a first question, which is, why do artists need business training in the first place? Why can't they just hire out for all of their administrative and business needs? The reason artists need business training is that they believe they are just creative and frou-frou and that it's just not important to earn money. And in fact, sometimes they think uh, earning money, charging for their work is not something they want to do. They feel embarrassed to do so. It's an attitude I have no idea where it begins, but a lot of artists just look at the word money and see a four-letter word. Wow. And of course, you know, one of the outcomes of that necessarily is um, to keep artists poor. So uh, it's something we're working hard to combat at the Clark Ewing's Fund. But tell me this, why did you decide to co-sponsor the upcoming Santa Fe Art Business Summit? Santa Fe is a city with 65,000 people. One out of six identify themselves as artists. And yet they're not able to make a living because there aren't enough people buying their work. So they need training on how to differentiate themselves, how to price their work properly, how to reach out to collectors. And they're not getting this in university. And I wanted to make sure that I was part of a program that would provide them with the education. Now, with this event coming up uh, right away, really, it's imminent. Uh, the last day of March, there's a, a keynote address, and then, of course, the main festivities of the event are April 1st and 2nd. I want to focus on this up front. What kinds of artists should be coming to this event? We have geared this program to the artist who was either professionally trained or learned on their own, have been selling their work at some level of success, for 10 or 15 years, but they're really not getting the income they want. They're not getting the notoriety. Their work isn't improving. Generally, they're between 40 and 50 years old, and they just want to figure out how to make a living as an artist because they're not doing so today. Okay, so the, the title of the event, Santa Fe Art Business Summit, is quite compelling, uh, but break it down for us. What kinds of topics can artists expect or look forward to at the event? Well, first of all, getting to know Santa Fe, which is an art-centric town, 
is part of the whole idea of calling it a summit. But the specific presentations have to do with marketing, how to price your work to sell it, to understand the impact of promoting your work on the internet. Also, we have a law-related presentation explaining how to do art licensing, what is copywriting, what is trademarking, what is the difference, and how do you know if you even want to copyright or trademark your artwork? In total, there are 10 different presentations over a two-day period. Well, so let's say that I'm a visual artist, a working visual artist who is making some money from my career, um, maybe not to the degree that I want, but, you know, it's a going concern. Uh, and obviously, I, I want to grow that and, and make it my life's work. Uh, what do you hope that an artist like that would take away from this summit? And what, if anything, do they need to bring to the table uh, in order to be successful at an event like this? This event is going to be a smorgasbord of presentations. And each artist has their own a little concern. Uh, one of them is pricing. They don't know how, whether they should be pricing their work based upon the materials that they use, or they should be pricing their work on the time it takes, or whether they are pricing their work because it looks like somebody else's in context. It's a painting that is 12 inches by 24 inches, and it's in a frame, and it's made with oils, and somebody else sells that for $9,000. Therefore, mine is just the same characteristics. I should be able to sell mine for nine. That's just a formula. It's a formula that doesn't work. And if the whole idea is to teach people about business, you measure business by the revenue that you are able to earn. And so pricing is very important. With over 200 galleries in Santa Fe, the participants will have a chance to visit as many galleries as they want, to be able to see how work that they believe is similar to theirs is actually priced. And this is part of the benefit of why the artists should come to Santa Fe and what they can expect to learn. Little hints about pricing, presentation, copyright, licensing. I like that you called it a smorgasbord. Uh, I remember being a kid and looking forward to going to a restaurant called Duff's Famous Smorgasbord. And the reason why is because you can get some of everything there. Where do you want to go eat? I, I want to go to the smorgasbord because I can get cake and pie in the one sitting. So it sounds like this event is going to be a rich, a rich offering, if you will, to uh, to artists, but I wonder if also you're catering to arts educators, and if so, why? We, in fact, have invited the art educators from the three universities in Santa Fe who are teaching artists skills and how to be in business. And personally, I think some of the artists who also happen to be the teachers are trying to teach the artists something that they don't know. And my goal was to update the three universities on how to teach the business of art. The three universities are the Santa Fe Community College, 
the Santa Fe University of Art and Design, and the third one is the Institute for American Indian Art. All three of these institutions have business programs, and the instructors are artists, people who have their MBA. They may be making somewhat of a living from selling their art, but because they're in a learning environment, they want students to be fed a bunch of information and demonstrate that they've learned it, even if the information is irrelevant. And a perfect example is when an artist spends four to six weeks learning how to make a website. And they're a painter. They're not a computer engineer. And they know if they just make something, they'll get an A. But they'll end up either making a vanity website or a marketing website. Both of them are not going to be particularly good. But if it is a marketing website, and they're also selling their work in a gallery, the gallery owner is going to be annoyed that the artist is now trying to sell directly to the collector, bypassing the gallery. So when educators in these three universities are spending four to six weeks teaching artists how to make websites, I get upset because it's a waste of everybody's time and in fact, it can hurt the artist's ability to actually make money. Well, it's interesting. There are a lot of issues we could unpack there, um, you know, from uh, dependence upon galleries as a sole source of income, which obviously galleries, um, you know, are, are financially uh, in decline compared where, to where they were a few years ago. And, and so a lot of artists are struggling. And of course, the move to directly connect artists with the, the public is the fastest growing sales channel. And then also you have the issue of educators in the art space, you know, what what should they be training in terms of business skills? So I guess I want to ask you about both of those things. I, I really wanted to uh, dig into this event up front because it's, as I say, imminent, but maybe pause here for a second and, and tell me, what do you think about this issue of dependency uh, upon ga galleries as a sole source of sales and marketing? And what do you think about this issue of uh, arts education and its deficiencies, or is it doing a fine job of providing the essential business training that artists need? Well, actually, you've asked me two different questions, and I'll answer them in order. <laughs> the first was, how does the artist take their work from their studio and get it into a buyer's location? One way is a gallery. Another way is an art dealer. Another way is a collector's representative. Another one is an architect, designer, decorator. And I've just named five different ways that an artist can present their work to somebody who will represent them so that that person can deal with the nuts and bolts of a transaction. There's a big difference between selling and marketing. Selling is handling the transaction. Selling can be an order taker. But if you really look at what selling is, selling begins when the customer says, no, I don't want it. Because the good salesperson will then 
Say, I understand that you don't want it, but what is it that you were looking for? What is it about this particular item that doesn't compel you to buy it? That's what selling is. Now, the other thing is marketing. And marketing is promotion. Marketing is branding. Marketing is advertising what is specific and unique to that artist. So what I'm doing right now is using my business skills of selling computer software and trying to help an artist understand there are many ways to get the art object from the studio into a location where somebody has spent money. And the artist must make the decision. I believe that they do not want to be a salesperson because salespeople are told no most of the time. And it takes a certain personality to hear no most of the time. Otherwise, they're order takers. Marketing, on the other hand, is something that an artist can do all the time and understand what they should be saying about their work, what they should not be saying about their work, and that's marketing. And so if an artist is sitting in their studio and says, I want to get my work into a location where the person in charge of that location will pay me money, they must make a decision as to how much time they want to spend marketing and who is going to be doing the selling, which is a completely different skill set. Now, that's the answer to the first part of your question, and I can't even remember the second part, so can you please re-ask it? Sure. I'm uh, asking about whether and in what way, if so, art educators are doing an adequate or inadequate job of giving artists the essential business skills they'll need to actually be successful in their careers. The art educators are spending time talking about skills that are not important, whether or not the artist should have a C corporation or a limited liability or a partnership, or they shouldn't even have a corporation. That should be perhaps a 20-minute discussion as part of a 45-minute presentation. The art educators are spending time on the mechanics of running a business as opposed to the value of having a business. I don't believe the little presentation I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, which is the difference between selling and marketing. I don't believe that discussion ever happens in a university because when I meet artists, they often respond to inquiries that sound like a sale is imminent. And yet when they respond to those inquiries, they give such an off-putting answer that a sale will never happen. And I will give you an example. When a, a potential buyer says to an artist, how long did it take you to make that painting? What they're trying to do is to figure out whether it's priced correctly 
That's what the buyer is trying to figure out. And if that buyer happens to be an attorney that's charging $600 an hour, and the artist said, I finished it in 10 hours, right away there's a price put on it. The artist should never answer that question. How many hours did it take you to make that work? But they're not taught that. They just blurt out an answer. And right away, the situation turns into negotiating price, which the artist should not be doing. That's what happens in sales. So the art educators, in many cases, have not been successful artists as measured by the amount of money they are able to make because they are an artist. So they're really not aware of the skills that they should have, and therefore they're not even teaching the artists the skills that they need to have and should be able to demonstrate once they decide they're going to make a living as an artist. So it goes back to what I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is there's a big difference between sales and marketing. And if the educators understood that, they might be talking to the artists about what is marketing and what are the different ways you can market yourself. And is it important for you to go to openings? Is it important for you to have good relationships with other artists in your field? What is the value of meeting a curator? Why would you want your art to be in a museum? They're not teaching the right things is, I think, the bottom line. Okay, so I want to get into a little bit about your work, but um, just to kind of put a cap on this event that's coming up, are there plans to make it national, expanded across the nation? Are there other organizations getting involved? Absolutely. This event is actually educationally put on by the Art Business Institute, whose headquarters are in Florida. And they have been teaching weekend seminars since 2002. But because they're in Florida and because there's a large population up and down the East Coast, most of their seminars, their weekend seminars, have been on the East Coast. So the organization, the Art Business Institute, is coming to Santa Fe for the first time because, number one, there's a big audience, and number two, artists from all over the country want to have a chance to experience Santa Fe, an art-centric city. Yes, and to further answer this, this will be the first of an annual event that is held in Santa Fe. If the registrations continue at the pace they are at, we will reach capacity in about five days. And then we will have a waiting list and we will immediately schedule another Santa Fe Art Business Institute six months from now. So for those that are interested in applying, uh, the last count that we did, uh, maybe less now, but it was that there are 11 spots left. And the URL for applying for this is artbusinessinstitute.org slash santa-fe-nm, nm as in the abbreviation for New Mexico. That's artbusinessinstitute.org slash santa-fe-nm because it's in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, Betsy, you currently work as a business strategy coach. What does that mean exactly? I go into a business that typically has flat sales, has never had any sales, 
or the sales have gone down. And I will find out within six to 10 hours why the sales have not increased or why they have gone down. And many times the founder of a company is still running the company. And somebody within the company has not been able to say, it is time for you to step aside and hire a CEO. Go back to be a product innovator, number one. And number two, when I go into businesses, I often find that the people who recognize there is a problem because of turnover or lack of sales or losing customers are not even aware of the three phases of running a company. The first phase is having an idea or an invention. The second is having a product or a service. And then the third is having a company and a business. And a business is measured by the revenue they're able to earn. And many times, organizations are not able to define the different segments of their company, the different stages they are at. If they have five product lines, are some of them still in the invention stage? Are others deliverable product and services? And who are the customers that come to the business, buy the product and service, and pay for it? And when I go into a company, it's usually because the revenue is flat or it's decreasing. And I try to go back to the point in the business when that was not the case. And there are times when the company could have new product sources of revenue and they don't even know it. I can give you an example. There were 12 scientists who were making a lot of money by creating solutions for organizations. And what they had done in the process of creating these solutions was to get patents. And I walked into their office, I saw the patents plaques on the wall, and I said, how many of those do you get royalties from? And the answer was none. I said, then why did you bother registering them as your ideas? And the answer was they were proud of it. And within six hours, they had identified sources where they could receive royalties from their patents. And within six weeks, they actually started to get revenue. But they were so close to their business, they didn't even know there was money being left on a table. And it took me as an outsider to look at those plaques and ask a very simple question. And an outsider can do that because they're not there every day. And that's how I, that's one way that I help customers, my customers, which are small to medium-sized businesses. Usually speaking I'll take a that, startup. Well, speaking of that, is there any overlap between the business needs of your corporate clients and of working artists? The business needs of the working artist and the corporate clients are very, very similar. The corporate client knows what they are selling. The artist thinks they only have one thing to sell, which is the product that they made. But they have more than that. 
they have the ability to license images of their product. An artist has the ability to take their color combinations and take ownership of them in a way that nobody else has ever done before. I'll give you a color combination that's very that you may know about. If you go to Wimbledon, everything is a green and a purple. That color combination is pretty identifiable as Wimbledon tennis. Now, artists also have color combinations that define their work, but a lot of times they don't even recognize it. Here in Santa Fe, or actually 20 miles south of it, are turquoise mines. And that is where Tiffany first found their turquoise. And to this day, every box from Tiffany is turquoise because that's how they started. And that's their unique color. Now, as with Wimbledon, as with Tiffany, an artist may have a color combination that is so special that you know it's theirs and they can take that color combination and make money from it, as opposed to the painting, per se, or the sculpture, or the photograph. Corporations selling a product or a service typically don't have that opportunity. Typically, there are situations in which they do. There are lots of similarities in helping an artist increase their revenue and helping a company or a business increase their revenue. I love doing this. Maybe you can tell. Well, there you go. Um, you got to love what you do, which is part of you know, what we want artists to do as well. So fantastic. Well, let me ask you this. So where do working artists struggle the most in your view? Artists often have come across their brand, what they do best. And for some reason, they said, well, that was good. I made a lot of money on that. Now I'm just going to do something else. And they, artists sometimes abandon the products that they have that can make them money. And they don't have to do that. They can have a beautiful invention, a beautiful sculpture design. And after they have created it four or five times, and it is theirs, the artist can actually hire a fabricator to make multiples or additional versions of that. It still belongs to the artist. They have hired a fabricator. The artist sometimes cannot accept the fact that it is still their work, even if somebody else is helping them fabricate it. And this can be a psychological adjustment for an artist to be comfortable with the fact that they needed help and they sought out help to make more of the wonderful thing they invented, that they created, they passionately put together. And if it's so popular, it's okay, I believe, for them to get fabricators to help them make more of them. Artists often don't want to even entertain that thought. And if they don't want to entertain that thought, it's just not going to happen for them. But if you take somebody like Adele Chihuly, who was an expert on color and an expert in a glass studio, and realized with his knowledge of glass and his knowledge 
of color. He could make these fabulous chandeliers, but he couldn't do it himself. He needed to have five or six people on his team, and he had to eventually have six teams working to deliver his particular artistic creative installation. He got it. He got it that it was his creativity, his color, his design, but he needed help producing a lot of them. Painters sometimes can't do that. Sculptors don't want to do it. Photographers don't want to do it. Jewelry makers don't want to do it. And so they paint themselves into a box where they can't grow because they will not accept the concept of having a fabricator or a helper with them to build their business. So, uh, Betsy, you have a passion, shifting now to glass arts and collecting. You have a passion for glass art, but are not an artist yourself. So what made you decide to support the arts and become a collector? When I first saw glass art, I was fascinated by how light could go through the glass and the light could reflect from the piece or it could refract. And because light sources change throughout the day, the piece could send out a different image based upon the colors as they were reacting to natural or artificial light. And once I saw that on the first sculpture made out of glass, I wanted to have more of them around me. And in our collection, which exceeds 250 pieces, we have met all but two of the artists. And we have been fortunate enough to go around the world, go into studios, and see sculptures made out of glass that would play with the light. And I would always ask the artist, which is your favorite piece? And at first they would say, oh, I like them all. And I'd say, no, there must be one you like better than another. And then they would say, yeah, I like that one over there. I like the blue Luna piece or the blue moon piece. And I would say, why? And when the artist could share a narrative about why they wanted to share, they wanted to make that piece so that they could share an idea, share their passion, send a message, that there was a narrative. I got so excited. I just wanted that piece around me. And I'm sitting in my home right now. I'm looking at a piece that was made by a Native American artist. It is made out of glass, and it is a panel where etched into the panel are fish, lightning, water bubbles, and it's all about the spirits of that tribe. The tribe doesn't believe in gods. They believe in spirit, the spirit of the water, the spirit of the rain, the spirit of the fish. And how important it is to honor the gifts that these spirits have given to us. So the piece tells the story of the artist and the Santa Clara Pueblo that is very close to my home here in Santa Fe. So the passion came from speaking to the artists and having them tell me their story. Why did they create that piece of art? And what is it they wanted me to know about their view of the world? I love that. And I just continue to meet artists, go into studios, and collect art for my home. But there's another whole thing that collectors do. 
and it's called covet and flaunt. Covet, you go into somebody else's home or gal and you say, I really want that. And then the flaunt part is if you got the one piece that that artist made with that design, with that message, you can brag about it. And you have it and you know that you're the only one that has it. It's a very strange set of behaviors. It may be true for collectors of paintings and pottery, but in the world of contemporary studio glass art, it is prevalent around the world. And that's part of my passion. So, uh, Betsy, tell us a little bit more about Glass Alliance, uh, New Mexico and California. What made you decide to get involved with those organizations, and what do they do? Glass Alliance... Um, New Mexico and Glass Alliance of Northern California are membership organizations that allow collectors, artists, and dealers, and curators to learn more about contemporary studio glass art. Contemporary is key. The artists are usually still alive. Studio, it's being made in a studio as opposed to a factory. The work from Baccarat is made in a factory. The work at Swarovski is in a factory. The work of Dale Chihuly is done in a studio. It's small, it's intimate. The artists have a chance to do things. So it's contemporary, studio, and it's glass, which has many different characteristics. With these organizations, and they are two of 14 in the country, there are monthly programs where artists from around the world come to that region and share their particular skill with the artists in that region. They also share their skill with the curators, with the collectors, with the dealers, and help the audience understand what the artist is trying to say. If the collector hears from the artist what the message is, they're more likely to purchase the art piece. And when they do, that allows the artist to continue to send a message because they are making a living now. And all of this is important to me. If everybody can win with a Glass Alliance organization, I feel that I have been successful. And both in Northern California and here in New Mexico, these organizations have been going on for over 10 years. I started Glass Alliance of Northern California in 2001, and it's still operational. I started Glass Alliance New Mexico in 2006. Same thing. So they both have the similar programs. They have tours and trips. A tour is multiple days. A trip is one day to visit a whole bunch of studios and collectors and galleries. So the program I put together in both locations, very same program. We don't write applications for grants. It's a self-sustaining organization. The membership money and the extra money from tours and trips are used to pay for education for the local artists so that they can improve their skills and continue working. So, uh, Betsy, one more thing. Currently, the artists participating in our Business Accelerator Fellowship, the Clark Ewing Fund, are setting their long-term business objectives and creating milestones to break down and pursue those objectives. Does that cue up any general advice you might have for them? 
one piece of advice I've learned from artists and from other business people is have fun. Feel good about what you're doing. Know that you've made a difference. And so many times the objective is how much money can I make? How much vacation time can I have? But another objective should be I am having so much fun doing this. I just wake up every morning and I just cannot wait to get into my studio, to go to an opening, to talk to the curator, that I love doing these things. And for the aspects of having a career and making money, if there are aspects that I don't like, acknowledge it. Don't force yourself to like it. Just say, this is something I'm uncomfortable doing. And it is so deep-seated that I am uncomfortable. I'm going to find a way to get that activity done. But I'm not going to force myself to do something I don't like doing. If I don't like selling, I'm not going to sell. If I don't like marketing, well, maybe I should learn how to market. The long-term objectives can be financial. The long-term objectives can be distribution. They can be how many museums you're in, how many shows you've had, how much money you're making. But for all those activities, am I as an artist having fun? Do I look forward to that next day? Now, not every day is going to be perfect. But if in general, I get up with a smile on my face and I go to bed with a smile on my face, I've had a pretty good career as an artist. And that would be a long-term objective just in an overall sense, but it can be revenue, it can be reputation, it can be quality, it can be creativity. So long-term objectives can be more than monetary or more than distribution. It can be using art to remind people of something that has happened or to encourage people to use art to make the world a better place. Artists can do something that business people often cannot do. And that is probably the reason I support the artists, because I realize art feeds the soul. There are three A's in our life. We have academics for our mind, we have athletics for our body, and we have art for our soul and our spirit. Those are the three A's that I think artists, should recognize they are part of. They're feeding the soul of everybody. Well, thank you, Betsy. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Ewing's Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on the Santa Fe Art Business Summit and Betsy Ehrenberg, visit artbusinessinstitute.org slash santa-fe-nm. For more information on the Clark Ewing's Fund, visit clarkewingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Betsy. It's been really great having you. I'm very, very honored, and thank you so much.